And I think most of you have been here through most of this, so I won't spend a lot of time explaining what we're doing, but just uh, in case somebody's joining us for the first time or listening to these messages for the first time, from John 17, we've been compiling quite a list of objective evidence. And this is evidence by which you can have confidence concerning the certainty that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure, is assured, and you will receive all the good promises given in Scripture. You will receive eternal life, eternal reward, and eternal part in the kingdom of God. And perhaps we should say this just by way of introduction. We haven't said this in a while. We're not talking about the, the surface concept of once saved, always saved. That's a concept given to unbelievers to assure them of something that they have no business being assured of. We are assured of our salvation because of the fruit that's born in our lives, certainly, but also because of all of this objective evidence. And this is a body of evidence here that we've put together that has nothing to do with a subjective measure, such as a past emotional experience, which may or may not have been genuine, a past profession of faith even, which may or may not have been genuine. This is why at Grace we're very adamant that with our children, especially the little ones, we will never ever try to to force or manipulate some sort of profession of faith because little children just want to do what adults tell them. And so we would give false assurance by having them do that. Rather, we wait for the Holy Spirit to move as he will, according to John 3. So instead of subjective evidence, instead of looking back at a profession that I may or may may not have meant when I was seven years old, instead, we look at these pieces of evidence that prove that God is about the business of preserving you and me until that final day. And so, so far we've seen that you can have what we're calling blessed assurance because of the Father's glory, the Son's glory, the Father's sovereignty, the Father's choice, the Son's authority, the Word's power, the Trinity's protection, and this morning we looked at the church's unity. And you notice so far that that has very little to do with us. This is about God. And so tonight we want to look at the Evidence that you may have blessed assurance because of the son's work, his labor, his work on our behalf. The Apostle Paul was assured that his own gospel efforts would bear fruit. He told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2.1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, your salvation was real. It's secure. You are certainly and assuredly in Christ. As a matter of fact, this first letter to the Thessalonian church was in response to news that Paul had received about them. He'd been forced to leave Thessalonica for just a few months, or just a few months rather, uh, after arriving. And and this little, little fledgling church, he was uncertain whether the gospel had really taken hold among these few people to whom he was preaching. And so eventually he sent Timothy back to check on them. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But when Paul heard the excellent report of a healthy and thriving church, he was overjoyed. And he said later in 1 Thessalonians 3, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy we feel for your sake before God? In other words, Paul didn't want to labor in vain. He didn't want to go to all of this effort and have no harvest. He didn't want to spread the gospel only to find that his converts were false and ultimately turned away from Christ. How discouraging would that be? 
Well, you can imagine that if the Apostle Paul didn't want to labor in vain, certainly the Lord Jesus Christ had no intention of laboring in vain either. His labors have produced a harvest of souls. And so what we want to do tonight is examine very briefly how the Son's work, the labors of the Son of God, provide assurance for you. And we see his confidence in his own work. First of all, in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so there was great confidence on the part of the Son. And really, we could just stop right there and say, the Son of God is confident that the work he began in you will be completed. But we want to examine the Son's work in a little bit more detail. And at the end of our time tonight, I'm just going to ask you one very simple question. And I I really think this question is going to be helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. I think it'll help you with your assurance of salvation. And so we'll end our time with just that one simple question. But just to make this as easy as possible, I want to divide our thoughts into some categories of the son's work. Some categories of the son's work. There could be many more, but we'll just do five because these are driven from the text of John 17. So five categories of the son's work. The first category we'll call proclamation. Proclamation. And we find this referenced at the very end of the prayer in verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He says, I made known your name. And as we've said before, the name of God can refer to multiple layers of who God is, his divine attributes, his reputation and fame, his superiority above all others. His name encompasses all of those things. And so what Jesus is basically saying is that he's revealed God the Father. He has given revelation. How has he done this? Well, we're more used to the phrase, the gospel of Christ, but in Mark 1.14 says that Jesus, quote, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Not only including the gospel which speaks of the, the coming sacrifice of Christ, but the gospel of God. All that God is. All that his redemptive plan entails. And when it says he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, proclaiming is a, a Greek word that's very exciting to us preachers here because it's one of the major words in the New Testament which speaks to preaching, to proclamation, to heralding. And it, it speaks of announcing something, of making something known, of proclaiming aloud. It is not the idea of just a, a set of data that's being passed from one person to another. It, there is an excitement to it. There is a, an authority to it. There's a boldness there's a determination in speaking to a listening crowd there's a reason that i don't preach a sermon seated on a chair in front of you in informal fashion we are formal because proclamation is formal by its very nature the foundation of the ministry of christ was proclamation and he made known the name of the father repeatedly Now, we could just review even a small sample here to discern just how Jesus revealed his father through preaching, through proclamation. And we'll just do a short list here. He revealed the father's perfection. Matthew 5, 48, he said, your heavenly father is perfect. This is a great piece of theology for us to understand that that all the attributes of God work together in perfection in all uh, the ways we can think of God. He is perfect. He revealed the Father's omniscience, that is his 
all-knowing nature. Jesus preached in Matthew 6, 4, let your giving be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is that? That is his all-knowing nature. Similarly, a few verses later, your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's a glorious thought that when you say our father, he already knows what you're going to say. He knows what you're going to ask for. Jesus revealed the father's care. He revealed his care in Matthew 6.26, he said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? How caring, how loving. He revealed the Father's will. I get this question all the time as a pastor. What, how do I know God's will for my life? Here it is. John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the will of the Father is that you come to Christ through faith in Christ. He revealed the Father's sovereignty. Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that is the truths of the gospel, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That is the sovereign plan of God that he chooses whom he will choose. He revealed the Father's decree Matthew 20, verse 23, to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. That God the Father has a decree from from time immemorial all the way through the end of time of everything that will happen because he has decreed it. He revealed the Father's mercy. Luke 6, 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He revealed, of course, the Father's holiness. Luke 11, verse 2 When you pray, say, Father, hallowed or holy is your name. He revealed the Father's grace. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's graciousness. He revealed the Father's self-sufficiency. John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. That God does not receive life from anyone. He is life. And he revealed the Father's electing will. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And those are just little smatterings. That's just a small slice, a small sample. Listen, the preaching of Jesus Christ was intensely theological. In the most technical sense of the term theology, the study of God. Sometimes it's called theology proper to differentiate it from other areas of theology. But he was intensely focused on revealing his father in the nature of God. I mean, Jesus was a theologian par excellence, not because he learned about God the Father through reading the Bible or learned about God the Father through reading theologies which tell us about the Bible, but he was a theologian, a student of God the Father, because he just came from him. He, he could tell all things about the Father literally by saying, let me tell you what the Father told me just a few days ago or years ago. He could say things as a witness. There's never been a Bible teacher like Jesus because all the rest of the Bible teachers, all we have is a written account of God. He simply records all he knows about God as being next to God and of course being God himself. So the most gracious thing Jesus could do in his preaching was to let his audience get to know God afresh 
in his preaching. And we're reminded that unless God chooses to reveal himself, we would not know him. We would have no idea. And he has revealed himself. All those little sample facts I gave you about God the Father, they can be found in abundance in the Old Testament as well. But Jesus now refreshes the memory of his people, of their loving Father. He was frankly reiterating what they should have known from the Old Testament. But really they'd functionally laid aside the Old Testament, forgotten who God was. And so Jesus reveals him in, in, in fresh, in very new ways in some ways. By the way, this proclamation has continued every generation since Christ. He said it would in verse 26. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. How has he continued to make it known? He's given us a completed Bible. And we, we've already spoken about the Bible at length earlier in this series. But it is, it's unheard of to have a book that is basically start to finish 3,500 years old or so and is untouched. It's untouched. It is is perfect today as when God first began superintending humans to put together the word of God. He's given us a complete Bible, our sole source of revelation about God the Father, about Christ, and his name is being made known this very day in countless places all over the earth. One of the things I love to think about on Sundays, all the places all over the world where men are saying, take your Bibles and open them too. And that's happening every single week all over the world. Now, through proclamation, God has revealed the name of God, that is the divine attributes, the reputation, the fame, the superiority of God the Father. But Jesus has revealed the Father in another way. This is the second category of the Son's work. Rather than proclamation, we'll call this one presentation. Presentation. Verse 6 Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people who, were, who you gave me out of the world. In verse 26, Jesus said he proclaimed the name of God. He has made it known. Here he's manifested. It's a word that means revealed, to make something shine the name of the Father. How has he revealed the name of the Father? How has he presented him? Well, he's revealed the name of the Father by his own presence. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh. He declared in John 14, 9 that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Very clear. Now, yes, Jesus taught all about the Father in profound depths, but he also manifested the Father. Let me put it this way. If you wanted to know what God was like, just follow Jesus around for a while. If you want an accurate theology of God the Father, read the Gospels, to put it in our terms today. Just a few ways that Jesus manifested his father. He demonstrated his power over nature. These are some of our favorite miracles. He changed water into wine. He made a raging sea stop instantly. He walked on water. He had a fish deliver money to to him to pay a tax. He commanded fish into fishing nets. He could do whatever he wanted with nature. Why? Because like the father, he is the creator. Speaking of that, Jesus demonstrated his power to create. He miraculously fed tens of thousands by creating new food as he ostensibly kept stretching out a meager supply. And the question is always asked, well, how did Jesus take this, these, this, this bread and this fish and, and how did he stretch it out? Well, he didn't stretch it out. He just kept making more. He's had the power to create 
a man's ear, which had just been severed on his behalf, by the way. And he recreated an ear instantly. Power over nature, his power to create. Jesus demonstrated, obviously, his power over the body. Matthew 4.23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And to put it in terms we can understand, he was emptying hospital beds, so to speak. That there was a time in Galilee where there was nobody who was sick. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the lame to walk, the paralyzed to stand. He healed with a touch, he healed with a word, or he healed just by being in the right place at the right time, such as the bleeding woman who touched his garment. Obviously, Jesus demonstrated his power over death. He raised the son of a widow. He raised the daughter of a leader. And he raised a friend named Lazarus. And those are just the resurrections recorded in the Gospels. We would surmise that there were more. Jesus demonstrated his power over demons. Mark 1, beginning in verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Listen, between preaching and healing, you can find out in the Gospels that Jesus, who is fully human as well as fully God, at times he was exhausted. He was tired and would even fall into a deep sleep. Some of you are those who can't sleep on airplanes because they have the least little bit of bump. And plus, there's always that thought of your life ending uh, right as you're waking up that makes us have difficulty falling asleep. Now, you think airplane turbulence is bad. How about being in a storm on a sea? And yet he's so exhausted from his work that he just sleeps through the storm. He was working. In fact, John says famously at the end of this gospel, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. His ministry of three and a half years was intense. It was full steam ahead every day. And why did he work this hard to manifest his father in himself, through himself to the world? Why did he do that? John 20, 31 tells us, so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So Jesus worked. He worked hard in proclamation. He worked in presentation. I'll give you a third category. He worked in propitiation. Propitiation. This is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. And, and yes, it's an unusual and a big term, but it's a term that is used multiple places in the New Testament. Romans three twenty five, speaking of this satisfaction of God's wrath, Jesus was, quote, put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews two seventeen, Christ came to earth fully human, Quote, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Apostle John uses the term a couple of times. First John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction. First John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, let me give you an easy way to remember this. 
this is so important. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this particular Greek word is used almost every time to refer to one object. And that object is the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That it's called the mercy seat, or we would say the propitiation. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to take blood from the sacrificed bull and he was to sprinkle it onto the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of Israel. The mercy seat was the throne of God on earth and blood must be presented to him. And so blood is presented to God in satisfaction of his wrath against sin. So to put it this way, in a way that's maybe easier to remember, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. He is the one upon whom the blood was splattered, so to speak. And here in this prayer, Jesus refers to this work which he is about to perform. You recall his phrase all the way back in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And we've said before that he's speaking of the hour of the cross. That the Son would be glorified and that he would obey his Father all the way to Calvary. He would bleed upon the cross at Golgotha, at the place of the skull. And that in victory, Jesus would cry out, It is finished. Propitiation has been accomplished. All your sins paid for. The wrath of God fully propitiated as the blood of Jesus is presented to God the Father. It's often been pointed out that Jesus never seemed anxious about a single miracle. He walked on water like it was a stroll through the countryside. He took on thousands of demons with an almost casual dismissal. He raised the dead by talking to them. He healed every manner of organic and terminal illnesses, even as a mere interruption. Excuse me for a moment while I save this person's life. Okay, now what were you saying? But only once, only one time do we see him crying out in agony and sweating drops of blood when he's in prayer preparing to be arrested and tortured and humiliated and crucified. Listen, we've all made investments in others. You've invested in your children. Many of you invest time discipling one another. Families invest time in other families. You've invested in me and our other pastors by giving money. We've invested in you by preaching the word and, by, and leading to the very best of our ability. Our elders and deacons have invested in the church by sacrificing time and treasure for the sake of Christ's church. But listen, no one has made an investment like Christ's. Not even close. An investment in future kingdom citizens which cost him everything. He, he left his glory in heaven to become a man who would die the most hideous, gruesome death possible as your substitute, as my substitute, to make certain that the fiery wrath of God fell upon him instead of on you. That is work. He worked in proclamation, in presentation, in propitiation. Let me give you a fourth category. He works in preservation he works in preservation now jesus looks ahead to the time shortly after the cross after his resurrection verse 11 and i am no longer in the world but they are in the world and i am coming to you holy father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one what's he looking ahead to he's looking ahead to his ascension he's going back to heaven 
he refers now to his imminent return to heaven. I am coming to you. And you notice what's in immediate proximity. His request, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Even as he's speaking for the very first time here of his ascension, what is he already doing? He's already interceding to the Father on your behalf. Already we see that connection. The Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished the work of salvation for all who would believe. But in his ascension, we see the beginning of his new ministry. And that is of intercession. Of interceding for you. Now, what is this intercession like? What are the qualities of this intercession? I'll give you just a couple. His intercession is eternal. It's eternal. First of all, Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus, quote, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is very important to us because Jesus didn't die for a potential group of saved people who may or may not make it to heaven. He secured an eternal redemption. To say that his death was purely potential for all who would receive him and that somehow now it's activated by faith, that that denigrates and lowers the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for your sins. It was done. It's eternal. And now he continues that work through intercession. Why does he continue in intercession? Because you keep sinning. And so do I. And so he continues to intercede. Another quality of this intercession, it's complete it's complete. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. It's a word that means completely to the full those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. No one who's truly saved is going to suddenly lose their salvation just moments before death. It's not going to happen. His intercession is eternal. It's complete. We're just using different words to say the same thing. It's relentless. It's relentless. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does John want for you? He wishes you would stop sinning. But you do sin. And so you have an advocate relentlessly proclaiming his own righteousness as a substitute for your wretchedness. In fact, this where it says he's an advocate literally means he is your helper before the Father. Eternal intercession, complete intercession, relentless intercession on your behalf and for all of us. And that is a full-time job for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does all the time. He ever lives to make intercession. So Jesus worked in proclamation, in presentation, in propitiation. He works currently in preservation. And he also works currently in preparation. In preparation. In verse 13, Jesus references his own departure once again. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When was another time that Jesus had referenced his own departure? Well, he didn't speak in such direct terms concerning his, his actual ascension. But just earlier in the evening, the same evening, he had referenced his own departure. He said in John 14, beginning of verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that there where I am, 
you may be also. Now we've dealt with John 14 a number of times and we understand that ultimately Jesus is speaking to the disciples about rapture and resurrection and in particular about heaven as it is now, about the intermediate heaven as it is now. So what did he mean though when he was saying that he's preparing a place? Well, traditionally, this has been often understood as Jesus literally constructing a place, making something for us in heaven. And you may have heard it preached. It takes six months to build a house on earth. Jesus has been working on your heavenly house for 2,000 years. And so then you take all the implications of that, and that's great, and that's encouraging. But this can't be some sort of heavenly new construction because the, the syntax and the structure of this verse tell us that the place that he's going to and the many rooms or the place that he's preparing rather and the many rooms that are already there are the same thing. It's the same. So it can't be a new construction project. Some would say, well, maybe he's talking about New Jerusalem, but we don't see in the Bible that New Jerusalem is something that is used in the intermediate heaven. It's something that's saved and kept. And then when you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, you see New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for a husband. In other words, it hasn't been used. And so what's the sense then of preparing a place? It's not building a place. It's getting a place ready. Getting a place ready. Ladies, when you have guests into your home, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's possible genetically for you to say, I don't care what the house looks like. I don't think that's possible. As a pastor, sometimes I, I, I'll have to tell Sylvia, so-and-so is coming by the house. That's not her favorite thing because she wants to be prepared. She wants to have food or she wants to have the house clean. She wants it prepared There's a sense of of being a gracious host or hostess. So how is Jesus getting a place ready? Well, we know at least three ways that he's getting preparations made for our arrival in heaven, things that are getting prepared. This is his work. First way, reward. Reward. We know that believers in Christ will be rewarded for their service to Christ. Revelation 4 symbolizes this as golden crowns. Jesus said in Revelation 22, my reward is with me. Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus will reward believers with authority over literal cities. That will be uh, given in heaven and then, and then worked out in the millennial kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3 speaks of our rewards for deeds done in the faith. And so we certainly expect preparation for the most incredible award ceremony of all time. Your rewards. You're standing before God and for every little thing that you did in righteousness for him after having received Christ by grace, you will be rewarded. The second preparation, dinner. Dinner. The church is known as the bride of Christ and in Revelation 19.6, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb and this goes way beyond dinner. This is a massive celebration that the Lamb of God slain to purchase a people for himself will be united with that people, united with the church. And listen, just a little side theological note. There, there is debate among theologians as to whether the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place in full during this intermediate time between the, the time of the rapture and resurrection of the church and the coming of Christ. If it takes place then or if it just gets started then. 
And some theologians have made the case that the marriage supper of the Lamb extends and continues on all through the thousand years of the millennial reign of Christ. That's a great argument because either way, it's fabulous. And in either case, Christ makes preparations. And the third preparation, very simply, the host has to be at home. The host has to be at home. Jesus needs to be there. As long as Jesus was still on earth, the place was not fully prepared. Have you ever gone to somebody's house and there's a note on the door, we'll be back in 10 minutes? That's sort of discouraging. That'll never happen in heaven. And so the Lord Jesus has gone to a lot of work. He's worked in proclamation, in presentation, in propitiation. He is working in preservation and in preparation. When we were planning many years ago to adopt our daughter, Julia, and she's up at camp so I can tell this story completely freely, I still remember making a phone call to an international adoption agency all the way in Oregon took an incredible amount of planning and focus. I mean, just, just the first phone call was overwhelming. And first, we had to write a very large check that just says, we're interested. And, and that check was non-refundable. If the next day we said, we're not interested, they would say, thank you very much for your money. And that was just the beginning of the financial obligation for that process. Then we had to fill out applications that make the IRS tax code look like a little golden book. It was intense. They asked questions that were so personal, we didn't even know the answers. It was ridiculous. Then we had to prove to both the United States government and the government of South Korea that we weren't criminals. Then we had to be interviewed over and over again. Our sons had to be interviewed without us there and had to be asked questions about what kind of parents we are. And Sylvia and I are just sweating bullets over that. Come on, kids, you can do it. Not to mention all the physical preparation. We rearranged the bedrooms in the house. We remodeled one room completely, like walls, ceilings, everything, to move our boys into it. Then we updated and remodeled the room that would become Julia's room. New ceiling, new floor. Then we painted Julia's room with this beautiful light mint green that looks so good in the paint store and so terrible on the walls. That Then we painted Julia's room again. Then we started gathering our baby furniture, our toys, diapers, clothes, and so forth. And all this time, we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the call from the adoption agency. And once we got the call, we had precisely 72 hours to book a flight and show up at the sister agency in Seoul, South Korea. Otherwise, the baby would go to someone else. And so when we got the call, we bought our plane tickets for $10 million since the flight was the next day. We drove three hours to the airport. We got on the plane. We flew for four weeks is what it felt like. We arrived in Seoul. The agency assured us that everybody in Seoul speaks English. They just missed one word. Nobody in Seoul speaks English. We were taken to the adoption agency office where we would be staying in an apartment right behind the agency office. The walls were so thin that we didn't even want to get dressed in front of the walls. They were that thin. Then we had to spend a week there and it was torture because they allowed us to see Julia for one hour a day as part of their process. Meanwhile, the other 23 hours were just trying to figure out how to survive everything from electricity to grocery shopping to finding basic essentials. We had many misadventures. 
For example, we found out that apparently the only food we could ever find was seafood that had been alive five seconds before it was served to us, and that's not our favorite thing. We finally, by God's grace, found an outback steakhouse, paid a fortune to a taxi driver to take us across town to this outback, only to find out that you had to be an electrical engineer to learn how to use the restroom there. And so after finding out that everything is electronic and everything is push button and all the buttons are labeled in Korean, and I pushed the wrong button and flooded the restroom, thankfully we had eaten already, so we took our leave and just asked the Lord to forgive us. And every day we would spend our one precious hour with baby Julia trying to let her get used to us. And then came the day that we could take her. And because she was the only out of 50 babies, the only little girl in this this place, they made us wait eight hours because they didn't want to let her go. And so we waited and we waited and we waited. And finally we took her out the doors In all that effort, do you think we ever had the thought of abandoning ship, abandoning our quest to bring her home? I'll tell you what, if anything, all the effort we put into adopting her, all the money, all the work, the scrutiny, the tears, the prayers, the waiting and waiting and waiting, all that did was intensify our desire to bring her home. And so here's my simple question I told you I would ask. Do you really think that after all that work, of proclamation to the men who would be saved, who would then in turn proclaim the gospel to each successive generation, the work of presentation of God through countless miracles that Christ performed for tens of thousands of people, the work of propitiation of the wrath of God through his own torture and suffering and death, the work of preservation through his eternal and complete and relentless work of intercession, and the work of preparation in which he is preparing heaven for you, awaiting your arrival for a reward ceremony for the marriage supper of the Lamb and for you to meet Him face to face for the first time, do you really think that after all that work that Jesus Christ is going to let anything whatsoever jeopardize the completion of your salvation? Not a chance. Not a chance. You may rest easy because the work of Christ will not be in vain. Amen? He has a kingdom to rule and you're it. You're it. Let's pray. Our Father, how assured we are that the Son has not worked in vain. That we will not be left behind because we sinned one too many times. We will not be left behind because we doubted. We will not be left behind because our faith wavered at moments. We will not be left behind because others say we are unworthy. We think of the Apostle Paul that gives us this glorious list of all the things that might try to separate us from the love of God in Christ. But neither life nor death, angels nor principalities, and this list culminating in anything else in all creation, none of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so we thank you for the the immense work of Christ, the investment that he has made in us that will pay dividends for him for all eternity as we serve as his kingdom citizens. We praise you and we thank you for this assurance of our salvation. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.